Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Bio Eats World, a podcast perched at the intersection of bio and tech. I'm Lauren Richardson, scientist and former senior editor of PLOS Biology. On today's episode, we're discussing the results and implications of a study recently published in the journal Cell, titled Genome-Wide Programmable Transcriptional Memory by CRISPR-Based Epigenome Editing. That's kind of a mouthful, but the general idea is quite simple. The article describes the creation of a new set of tools to turn off or on any region in the genome with high specificity. I am joined by the senior author of the study, Jonathan Weissman, professor of biology at the Whitehead Institute at MIT, and A16Z general partner and fellow bioengineer Vijay Pandey. Jonathan talks to us about how they developed these tools using the CRISPR gene editor as a backbone the advantages of modulating the epigenome as opposed to the genome, and the various applications, both in the lab and in the clinic, for these epigenome editors. We start with Jonathan laying out the differences between the genome and the epigenome, and the advantages of targeting the latter. When we talk about, say, a genetic cause of disease, we're typically thinking that there's uh, change in the underlying sequence of our DNA, a mutation that then is obligatorily inherited, for example, to your children. But in addition to these genetic changes, there are epigenetic marks that control the expression of which genes are turned on. So for example, we have 20,000 genes and at least a few hundred and probably a few thousand different cell types. And what makes the cell that senses light in your eye, different from a muscle cell, isn't the DNA, isn't the genetic differences. It's epigenetic marks that tell which of these 20,000 genes are turned on. Yeah. And like a common example is that if you've ever seen identical twins that are maybe not the same height, the differences probably are not genetic, most likely more epigenetic. So what are the components that make up epigenetics? You know, we think of genetics as the four nucleobases in a particular sequence. What defines epigenetics? So it's a large field, and I'm going to be simplifying. But two big components are in proteins called histones that the DNA is wrapped around and keeps them compact. So there's a whole so-called histone code of modifications, acetyl groups or methyl groups, uh, among other, that are important for the epigenetic control of which genes are able to be expressed and not expressed. The second and the really, I would say, the really driving force for the work that we did are chemical modifications of the DNA itself, so-called methylation 
of the sea base. And these methyl marks on cytosines are a signal for a gene to be turned off and to be turned off in a heritable way. So these are chemical modifications either to the proteins that are, you know, part of how DNA is packaged in the cell or to the DNA itself. So what kind of properties do they change? One of the things that the methylation of the DNA does is it actually prevents the so-called transcription factors. These are proteins that bind to DNA in a site-specific manner, so bind upstream of a gene that's supposed to be turned on and allow it to be transcribed and to get an mRNA copy. And these methylations can either directly or indirectly block transcription factors from being able to act to turn on those genes. So what does the modulation of epigenetics, you know, these marks, these chemical modifications, allow you to do that modification of genetics doesn't? Like, why do you want to target epigenetics? There are some overlaps, but in many ways, think of it. And why would you want to change your DNA? Why would you want to cause, for example, a double-strand break in your DNA when your goal is simply to turn off a gene? It's really a sort of a next generation, CRISPR 2.0. The initial CRISPR was that you use these scissors to make a double-strand break in DNA and to damage or to try to repair a gene. And the problem is you then rely on very complex repair pathways that are proven very difficult to control. So uh, working with Britt Adamson, we just had a paper on BioArchive that mapped out these repair pathways, and it just confirmed what everyone knows. There's enormous complexity to these. So you're taking this precision tool where CRISPR, Cas9, that can be programmed to cut precisely at any place in the genome you want, and then handing it over to this incredibly complex and hard to control process of DNA repair. So if you don't have to do that, I would say you, you don't want to. Now, there's some things like if you have an inborn mutation, for example, if you have a, a mutation in the cystic fibrosis gene that removes the phenylalanine 508 codon, you really want to change the DNA and repair it. That would be the perfect repair. And for that, we're getting a whole new set of tools like base editors and prime editors that are very good at doing those repairs. But for many changes, so for example, if you want to turn off a pathogenic gene or turn off a gene in only one cell type and not another, or sometimes it's the RNA itself that's pathogenic and some of the triplet repeat diseases, then the more precise and and cleaner way to do this is to simply stop expression of that gene. And that's exactly what epigenetics does. So how have scientists tried to manipulate the epigenome in the past? And what are some of the limitations of those previous approaches that you wanted to overcome with your system that we're discussing today? So our work takes advantage of a great deal of work of other people. and That's really why we're able to move so quickly. So at the very beginning of the sort of modern CRISPR era and sort of 2012, Luke Gilbert, myself, Jennifer Doudna, and Wendell Lim, and Stanley T at UC Berkeley and UCSF realized that if we could take the Cas9 and break its scissors by mutations, and Jennifer had shown how to do this, we would now have a programmable DNA binding protein. And we could then, taking advantage of all that was known about these different effector domains for epigenetic modifications, things that modified the histones or modified the DNA, that we could make an epigenetic editor. Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning of 2013, just when the first Cas9 human editing papers came out, we published a paper showing that the dead Cas9, the one with no scissors, could be used for epigenetic reprogramming. And there we built on 
what had been done in zinc fingers and tails for bringing in different epigenetic effectors. That opened up the field of programmable epigenetic modifiers. The problem with these epigenetic modifiers relative to CRISPR cutting when you thought about therapeutics is the CRISPR cutting was a once and done. It would go in, make a cut, and you'd never have to continue the expression of your Cas9. Whereas our epigenetic silencers, our epigenetic activators were very effective, but they were only effective as long as our dead Cas9 fusions were being expressed in the cell. And so the next generation was taking advantage of these endogenous systems for methylating and permanently silencing genes and trying to put those pieces together. And there have been a number of steps, including some very nice work from Angela Bardo in Milan and Luigi Naudini on this, and my colleague Rudolf Yenisch at the Whitehead. But they required multiple proteins and had only been done on a very small number of genes. And what we set out to do was to build a robust single fusion protein that could be programmed to any gene and then to learn the rules for how we could turn on or off any gene. When we think of the canonical form of CRISPR, it's often discussed as is a molecular scissors that comes in, it cuts the DNA, and then it can do that with high specificity. But what is not necessarily as specific as we want it to be is what happens downstream of that cutting event, which involves all these different proteins and systems that are encoded in the human genome and the human system that are just extremely complex and that are difficult to predict how they're going to respond to that DNA cut. So what you did was take the backbone of the CRISPR-Cas system and just make it so that the cutting action doesn't work anymore, but it still has this incredible specificity that you can target it to particular regions of the genome. And now you're turning it into, instead of molecular scissors, into sort of like a molecular homing mechanism. And then adding different functionalities to that to now manipulate the epigenome. So this epigenome editor that you've created is sort of like a Frankenstein protein. So what are the different pieces that you put together and kind of how did you engineer that system? Yeah, so it's actually got three different fusion proteins on it. They're DNMT3A, 3L, and CRAB for the aficionados. But each of them has a different role. One puts on the methyl mark on the cytosines, the CPGs. The other helps that. And then the third one modifies histones in a way that acts synergistically to sort of kickstart the silencing. And what this system is based on is our cells are constantly under attack by parasitic DNA elements, the so-called endogenous retroviral elements. These are DNA elements that are going around, copying themselves and making new copies in the genome. And a large fraction of our genome are these elements. We're in constant warfare with these. And so our bodies have a huge interest in keeping these silenced because if they're turned on, then they're active and they're able to hop from one place to another and cause havoc. So there's this mechanism for silencing these endogenous retroviral elements, and they're very robust. And once they're silenced, they're particularly good at propagating the silencing as a cell grows and divides. So what our three domains that we brought in do is mimic this silencing mechanism. So what we're really doing is kickstarting the system over to the silent state. Once you're in the silent state, the cell's very good at keeping it there. We talked about the complexity of epigenetics, how there's all these different kinds of marks that can be made on the DNA that have all these different effects. 
And what you did in this system was think about what marks in the human genome are the most durable, that are the most silent, if you will. And these are these parasitic DNA fragments that have invaded our genomes and that have been inherited over millions of years. And so you took the marks that you already knew were on these silent systems and then figured out how to copy that using the incredible programmability of CRISPR to seed that and then let that kind of spread and take over. And that's how you control where the marks go and to get them to be durable. Because there are some marks in the genome that aren't durable like that, that, you know, are just kind of temporary silencing. And I'm curious, Jonathan, you know, how you and the team thought about engineering the protein complexes. Was there a lot of work in engineering the proteins themselves or was the creativity in terms of finding the domains and which ones you'd want to hook together? There was a lot in actually putting the domains together. So James Nunes had been a graduate student with Jennifer Downen and some beautiful work on uh, CRISPR systems using structural biology. So he looked at what was known about the structure of these methyl transferases and how they naturally propagated because it wasn't enough to put a single methyl site on the DNA. You had to have a string of these and we knew mm-hmm. that they polymerized. So he designed his linkers and his fusions to be able to mimic that polymerization. That's really exciting because I think I'm always curious about, especially for advances like these, not just what you can do with what you've created, but the process of creating it and what does that speak to more complicated designs in the future? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a big area of this sort of designing fusion proteins. And there's a lot of heuristics out there, tools of linkers and things, but it's also a lot of trial and error. Sure. I'm curious if you think there are going to be differences either in, or what would be the differences in either efficacy of these approaches versus the traditional CRISPR or uh, off-target concerns, like downsides, uh, side effects. We think that If your goal is to silence a pathogenic gene, then the advantages of the CRISPR-Off are you get a single outcome, which is this silent state, as opposed to many different repair events. Some of them are just small holes in your protein coding sequence that prevent that protein from functioning, but others might cause translocations or very large deletions. So you get a uniformity in outcome that's advantageous. Second is the act of cutting the DNA itself is toxic. And so you get these so-called double-strand break repair pathways turning on a system because basically once DNA is broken, the cell has to stop dividing because it's really bad if it starts dividing. Or maybe you've cut it in the process of the cell dividing, and then it's got to figure out how to stop dividing and repair that. So you don't have that insult to the double-stranded break. That's the second advantage. And the third is you've really eliminated expression of the pathogenic RNA, whether it's pathogenic because of the protein it encoded or pathogenic because of the RNA itself. It's simply not made. Whereas when you, let's say, cause a little insertion, deletion, or an indel that disrupts a protein from functioning, you may have stopped that protein from being made, but you're still now making an RNA, which gets turned into a protein, but now a damaged protein that then has to be degraded and dealt with by the cell. So it's a more perfect solution. And this is, I think, important whether you want to turn off a single gene or a single pathogenic RNA, but then when you want to do more complex modifications. So for example, if you want to turn off three or four genes in uh, cell engineering for cell therapies, then it becomes a huge advantage to be able to epigenetically silence. So we think that this multiplexing applications are one of the clear advantages. 
So we've talked about this need to be both silent enough, but not too silent. But there's also the element of specificity. You know, how can you target this to a specific region? So what was your mechanism for targeting and how did you decide whether the specificity was, quote unquote, good enough? So we didn't want to have to have each gene be a research project. We want to try to silence essentially all of the genes in the genome. And what we did is take advantage of an expertise of my lab, as well as several others, of making these libraries of guides. So you make a library where you have a guide that's targeting every gene, these so-called tiling libraries. We use the tiling libraries to define the window of where we should target. And then once we define those windows, and we have other rules for how to design guides, I'll learn from our previous and other people's previous studies. And so then you make these libraries in the computer based on these rules. You have them synthesized and you turn them into a library of lentivirus that can be delivered into cells. So there's a few thousand genes that when you silence, cause cells to die or grow slowly. And the remaining 18,000 or so don't have an effect on growth. So we target all 20,000 and in a pooled experiment, measure for each of these, whether they're affecting the growth or not, and ask, are the ones targeting the genes that are essential causing the cells to grow poorly? And are the ones not targeting essential genes not having an effect on growth? So this case gives us a, a sort of precision recall to get mm-hmm. an idea, not only how effective we are, but how often when we're not targeting an essential gene, we still get an effect on growth. We had a very high degree of precision and we measured this by more direct molecular techniques on a few loci as well. So this is really what gave us confidence that we didn't have just a prototype approach, but we really had a robust approach for specifically silencing the large majority of genes in the human genome. Specificity is, of course, very important, and you've demonstrated great specificity. But if you're making changes related to the genome, ideally, you'd want them to also be reversible. Were you able to reverse these edits, or is this like a permanent mark? Yeah, so we called our epigenetic silencer CRISPR off, and we then made an analogous molecule we called CRISPR on, which brought in the demethylases, the natural enzymes, they're called TED proteins, there for removing these methyl marks. So we were able, again, to take these systems for reversing the methylation and make fusion proteins that could do this. So when we delivered those to in a programmed way, we were able to efficiently reverse the silencing. In this paper, I mean, you basically created two editors, one that can turn genes off and one that can turn genes on. So why was the focus of the paper CRISPR off? Is there something more, like inherently more functional or more applications of the ability to turn specific genes off than it is on? To be honest, we characterized the CRISPR off first much more thoroughly. And until you had a good way of turning it off, there wasn't as much interest in turning it back on. And that's not always true, though. There are actually a number of potential therapeutic uses of a CRISPR on, of turning genes on. So fetal hemoglobin, a form of hemoglobin that's only expressed in the fetus, is silenced in adult erythrocyte precursors. But if you could turn on this fetal hemoglobin, we know that that's a viable therapeutic strategy for sickle cell trait, where the adult hemoglobin gene has a mutation that's causing this sickling phenotype. And a number of the CRISPR gene editing strategies are about turning on fetal hemoglobin. This gets to another point. We can silence not only a gene itself, but we can silence the regulatory regions, so-called enhancer regions. The gene that controls fetal hemoglobin, BC11A, is expressed throughout your hematopoietic system. And if you knock that out, 
fetal hemoglobin will go on, but you'll then have other defects in other blood types. So what you want to do is specifically present the BC11A from working in the erythrocyte, the red blood lineage, but have it be able to work normally in the other lineages. And the way to do that is to silence and enhancer or turn off the enhancer that specifically controls the expression of BC11A in the erythrocyte lineage, but is not important for the expression in other lineages. But there are all sorts of examples of where a protein may be playing a normal beneficial role in some cell types, but contributing to pathology in others. So yeah, the cell type specificity of these edits is a highly desirable feature of the system. One way to get the specificity is to build delivery tools that only go into the cell type you care about, but then you have to solve the problem for every cell type. And so a complement to that is to have less specificity in which cells you edit, but make sure that that edit only has the effect in the cell type you desire. So the last question that I have about the work that you've done in this paper is about the durability of these marks. How did you test the durability of this engineered CRISPR auth? And what did you find about how established you could make these marks, how long they could persist and then through what conditions? Yeah, so we would introduce our CRISPR auth transiently. And this would turn on the CRISPR auth for uh, a day to a few days. But then we would grow the cells or allow them to passage in the dish and monitor the expression of the gene. And James Nunes, the first author on the work, uh, actually carried out an experiment where he grew and divided cells for 450 days and then checked individual clones and found that the vast majority, something like 38 out of 39, the gene was completely silenced. This really shows that cells able to not only to turn off the gene, but to faithfully reproduce these methylation marks and keep the gene silenced. And we've also uh, did this in stem cells and differentiated them to neurons and showed that this gene stayed off. We actually took a gene that's not even expressed in a stem cell, the tau protein, that encodes for the tau protein, an important gene in the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease, uh, methylated it in the IPS cell where it's not expressed at all, turned those cells into neuron where they normally would have turned on tau and showed that it failed to turn on the tau protein. This means we can engineer stem cells so that they will not only aren't expressing the sets of genes that we care about, but we'll never express them. Right. During the process of differentiation, you've got tons of genes turning off and turning on. That's how you turn a stem cell into a differentiated cell. It's all through changes to the epigenome. So you showed that the marks that you made with your CRISPR-Off system were able to kind of supersede the endogenous changes that should have occurred. Yeah. Exactly. Which is really exciting and and hints to a lot of applications. So now that we've talked about how you develop this CRISPR-Off system and its different properties, let's talk about what can we use this for? And I'd love to hear both the uses for it in the lab or potential therapeutics that could be derived from something like this. Yeah, so I think of this as there's four distinct uses, some practical, some more as a research tool. The first is the obvious one, which is you have a pathogenic gene that contributes to pathogenesis, like PCSK9 in the liver, that we know from human genetics, if you inherit a broken one or even better, two broken copies of PCSK9, you have ultra-low lipids and you have a much lower chance of getting cardiovascular disease. So here, it's really straightforward. There's delivery mechanisms to the liver and 
we think that a CRISPR-Off strategy could have clear advantages. It's a once-and-done therapy, unlike, say, RNAi or an antibody therapy. It's reversible, and it has a very uniform outcomes. So those and other disease-causing genes are obvious use cases. The second is for cell engineering. So there's a, a rightfully so been a great deal of interest in cell-based therapies. And increasingly, we realize that it's in addition to, for example, on CAR-T, where you want to express a chimeric T-cell receptor, there's a host of genes you want to silence, genes that are involved in exhaustion, for example, or genes that would cause your CAR-T uh, to be recognized as foreign if you're trying to make a one-size-fits-all CAR-T that could go into anyone rather than having to engineer everyone's cells for their own therapy. And for these, it may be valuable to turn off many genes at once. And one of the advantages of the CRISPR-Off that we showed is that we can multiplex, we can silence multiple genes at once without these combinatorial increase in off-targets and translocations and DNA damage responses. The third is in this discovery mode of discovering what the roles of each gene is in contributing to disease and discovering what the roles of enhancers, where they work and how they influence the gene. So most of our GWAS hits from genetic association studies are not in protein coding regions. They're in these regulatory regions and promoters and enhancers. And mapping how they influence the function of the cell is a major challenge in interpretation of GWAS studies. And the programmability of CRISPR-Off, I think, makes it a very good tool for that. And then the fourth is in this being able to program silencing at a defined time and defined place gives us a great tool for studying the process by which these silencing marks are initiated and then propagated. So a discovery tool for understanding how epigenetics works. Yeah, it's especially really interesting to put this in the context of all the other aspects of epigenetics, like the ability to single cell sequence, and especially combined with the fact that often cells do a reasonable job in many cases of recapitulating disease phenotype such that you can then identify disease cells, single cell sequencing, find what the epigenetic changes are, and now turn them on or off. It feels like a lot of sort of discovery of biology now becomes like a well-known cycle that maybe just could be done for many different diseases. Yeah, so this comes to a, a whole other use of the epigenetic modifiers, which is this functional genomics for discovery. And in the end, I think that's going to be the bigger impact on disease, or at least has big impact on disease. Because it's tools like CRISPR and epigenetic modifiers and base editors and prime editors have given us the ability to manipulate the genome and their expression genome with enormous precision. But now what we really need to complement them is for the more common diseases to understand which genes we want to turn on or off or change. Exactly. We talked about these four different applications. I can see how you could start using it immediately for these research applications, but what about, you know, for the therapeutic applications? Like what still needs to be developed to really take this from something you developed in the lab to something that is possibly being used in a therapeutic purpose? So full disclosure, this is a big interest of ours. So one of the projects over the pandemic was for Luke Gilbert, David Liu and Keith Young and I too are working to start to try to put together a group to explore this possibility. And I think it, this is very much a stage where it's no longer the type of discovery project 
that is best suited in an academic lab like mine, but is really having a team that's devoted to these types of refinements. So the CRISPR off as it is, you know, works very nicely to silence. There's a number of directions that one might want to go. Uh, try to make it smaller, use other DNA binding platforms that could be advantageous for some delivery systems, all the sorts of nuts and bolts of how to get it in in the right place at the right time. And those are reasonably straightforward, but will require some working out. We may also want to better define the rules for turning off these regulatory regions, these enhancer regions for some therapeutics. I think an attractive strategy for turning genes on is to silence silencers. So we know that in a number of cases, it's the expression of an RNA that's having a regulatory or, for example, antisense RNAs that are regulating the expression of a gene. And if we can silence those, we would turn up our gene. So that lets us get therapeutic strategies for turning on a gene. So a lot of focused applications in particular disease areas, and that's going to be a combination of where's their therapeutic need, where's CRISPR-Off have a, a really clear advantage, and where can delivery now take us and where is it going to be going forward? Of those, which ones do you worry about the most? I mean, you made a good point about getting it smaller. Is it fit within the AAVs or typical delivery methods right now? Certainly the molecule we did did not. It would be too big, but that seems very likely to be a solvable problem. And one of the potential advantages over, for example, base editor and prime editor, which are beautiful tools and can do things that CRISPR-Off mm-hmm. can't do, but they require this bubble and they require a NIC. So they really require the whole CAS system. Whereas mm-hmm. uh, I think we can go for much more refined and smaller targeting for specific genes, give up the programmability and go for much smaller targeting and less antigenic targeting domains. And with that, it should nicely fit in to AAV. Cool. We'd like to make a protein version of this so that you, because it would be most elegant if you never introduce a foreign DNA, we'd like to Mm. improve the RNA delivery and take advantage of all the advances in LMP technology. And then a little broader, this endogenous retroviral system is only one system for silencing genes. The cell has many different systems. And so we think that's going to be a great reservoir for new types of epigenetic modifiers. For example, maybe for some uses that you'd want silencing for a week or a month, but not permanent silencing. Or the optimal silencer in a cell that's dividing may be different in a cell that's not dividing. There's a lot of different vectors in which to tweak this system to make it most applicable to the problem that you're trying to solve. I'd love to wrap up just with your high-level take on what the new opportunities this work presents. Yeah, I think we have a new tool for regulating in an inheritable way the expression of genes and the activity of the regulatory elements in the genome. And so we now, uh, instead of uh, just being able to edit and modify the protein coding genes, we can turn off the protein coding genes, we can turn off regulatory RNAs, and we can modulate all of the regulatory regions in principle of the genome. It just gives us many more levers to pull both for discovery and for therapeutic applications. I'm very curious to see where technology like this goes from here. This ability to sort of build these protein complexes by taking these blocks and just 
largely being thoughtful about and being creative about what's possible and then putting the constructs together, doing all the work to make sure that it works reliably and, and that it could be work reliably. But that I think my hope is that this is the first of many such examples where epigenetic editing is, is one, but um, uh, it's this, almost like the sky's the limit from here for what creativity plus many of the existing building blocks could do. Excellent. Jonathan, Vijay, thank you for joining me on Journal Club today. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for BioEats World this week. BioEats World is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lauren Richardson, with the help of the A16Z bio team, Justin Golden, and Seven Morris, and is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you've got questions about this episode or want to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email BioEatsWorld, that's one word, at a16z.com. And last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts.